Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. regulatory updates to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our Policy on Demand studio in Washington, D.C., where I'm excited to have Aaron Jung back on the podcast. Aaron is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice and former tax counsel for the House of Representatives during the enactment of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Doug. Glad to be back. It's like coming home for the holidays. Nice. Um, well, and I'm very excited. This is a topic that I've spent a lot of time over the course of my career thinking about, watching all these developments. But we're going to be talking about a code provision, 367D. And I try not to use too many code sections, but we're going to introduce what 367D is. But it came in during 1984. So I, I was nine years old at the time. You were, I think, negative three, if my math is, is correct. Um, but so, Aaron, before we dive into 367D, I appreciate you were born at the tail end of the 80s. Who is your favorite 80s band? That's a great question. Um, I'm probably going to go with Guns N' Roses, and I'll All tell right. you the reason why is uh, my nephew is actually named Axel. Was so. he named after Axel Rose? You know, uh, it, it's actually a, a long history family name. Okay. And so it's spelled slightly differently. He's got an E in there. Got but, it. Uh, I think about it every time. All right. So this has been a very difficult question as I've been thinking about trying to answer. Um, my initial answer for my favorite 80s band was going to be Depeche Mode. But then upon a little Google research, I realized that Violator didn't come out until the 90s. Um, so I'm going to go with Cyndi Lauper as a favorite, favorite 80s artist. A big, I was one. a big fan of Cyndi Lauper um, and, uh, when I was a kid. So, That's all right, awesome. let's move on to some more tax-relevant uh, areas, right, as opposed to testing our knowledge of 80s bands. Um, before we dive into these recently proposed regulations, I think it's important for listeners to understand how the U.S. taxes intercompany IP transfers from the U.S. to related foreign affiliates. And Aaron, I want you to keep in mind we've got a lot of listeners outside the U.S. where some of these terms are going to be uh, foreign, uh, pun intended, to, uh, to, to these listeners that don't have an understanding of the U.S. tax system. But we have almost 40 years of history with this provision that relates to intercompany IP transfers. And from my experiences, this provision is very unique to the U.S. tax system. There's certainly kind of outbound toll charges, but just the mechanics of our 367D are very unique to the U.S. But I also think it's relevant for other countries as they think about intercompany IP movements, particularly in the context of Pillar 2, which we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast. So let's take our time machine back to 1984. And in, in, during that year, Congress enacted 367D, and they said it was attended, intended to address the following problem. And this is a direct quote. Transfer or U.S. companies hope to reduce their U.S. taxable income by deducting substantial research and experimentation expenses associated with the development of the transferred intangible and by transferring the intangible to a foreign corporation at the point of profitability to ensure deferral of U.S. tax on the profits generated by the intangible. 
close quote. So concern was you take a bunch of deductions in the U.S. on R&E, before it gets to profitability, you move it offshore, and then under the 1984 international tax system, which is, was obviously pre-guilty, you could defer that income from U.S. tax until you ultimately brought it back to the U.S. So how, Aaron, does 367D operate to address this issue? What is the general statutory framework? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really unique one, Doug. So the base construct is a deemed sale by the U.S. transferor. Um, but Congress was concerned that wouldn't be effective because you're, you know, just as you noted in that quote, you're talking about intangible property that has just come online as being profitable, right? And so at that point, the forecasts are still very gray. And so the fair market value of it actually might be quite low when you do the outbound transfer, even though it may go on to be wildly successful several years down the road. And so instead of doing just a deemed sale that would only pick up in the U.S. tax base the fair market value at that time, they did a deemed sale in exchange for contingent payments based on the productivity use or disposition of the transferred IP. So it creates this tail to the transfer, kind of like having a deemed royalty. It's not actually a deemed royalty, it's just a contingent sale, but it's kind of like a deemed royalty for the useful life of the intangible property that keeps clawing back into the U.S. And what's really unique about this is that's the treatment from the transferor's perspective. The statute doesn't tell you what happens from the transferee's perspective, from the CFC's perspective. So all we know is the U.S. tax base is going to pick up income based on the productivity use or disposition of this IP in the future. And then we kind of, we're off to the races from there. Yeah, and, and there's a whole bunch of interesting issues. And, and I think the first point is that many of us, I think, in the area call it a deemed royalty. But to your point, it's really not, right? I mean, it's a deemed sale, it's a contingent sale that is effectively treated for US tax purposes like royalty and its foreign source income, general basket, generally speaking, on that, on that deemed royalty that, that, that comes back. And then the rules also tell us, and we'll kind of dive into a little bit, that you get a deduction for, for US E&P purposes but from wherever you're transferring that, wherever the U.S. transferor is transferring that IP to, so that foreign transferee or that CFC, of course, the local country is not subject to the U.S. regulatory rules. And so that I mean, there's just this practical issue of, well, if there's this deemed royalty that comes back to the U.S., how do you actually facilitate a cash payment? How does that CFC actually get that cash back to the U.S.? And so just a whole bunch of kind of anomalies that are created by this U.S. tax fiction and then what actually is happening for legal purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the statute doesn't tell us a heck of a lot on what to do on some of that, right? It tells you the kind of the baseline, baseline treatment of a constructive sale, tells you to reduce E&P. Um, actually, at the time it was enacted, it didn't, didn't source it like a royalty, but years later was amended to source it like a royalty um, and basket it that way as well. But, but past that, you're kind of left on your own when looking at the statute. It just doesn't have a lot of detail um, on, on how to handle these things. Okay. So the other key piece, um, when, we think about, when I think about 367D, in addition to the deemed sale construct and the deemed royalty, are subsequent transfer rules. Talk a little bit about that and how that kind of fits within the architecture of 367D. Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, the, the contingent sale is based on the productivity use or disposition of, of the IP. And the statute makes clear that we're talking about direct dispositions as well as indirect dispositions, whatever that means. 
right? And so the thinking there is you had a related party transfer of this IP, we're gonna keep tracking the income, but if you dispose of it to an unrelated party, we're not gonna deem some you know, constructive royalty or contingent sale with an unrelated party ad infinitum, right? We're gonna cut it off when you get rid of this thing. And so the, the statute, I think, contemplates that when the, I'll call it the controlled group, disposes of the IP, that's the kind of time where you pick up the rest of the income under 367D and you call it a day from this U.S. transferor's perspective. And then the, the unrelated buyer will do what they're going to do. Um, what the statute doesn't do is tell us, you know, how to handle dispositions within the control group or even really the mechanics when it's outside the control group. And so we've got um, temporary regulations that at this point are, are several decades old. that They actually um, are grandfathered into the, the non-sunsetting part of temporary regulations. And they flesh it out a little bit on what you do with subsequent dispositions. And the general construct they adopt is if the transferred IP is disposed of to a third party, then to an unrelated party, then the U.S. transferor picks up income based on the value of the IP at the time of the third party disposition and you cut off 367. If on the other hand, um, the IP is transferred to, an, to a related party, if it stays within the group, then 367D kind of stays on and you just redesignate who was the transferee or who was the transferor uh, depending on how the, the relationship moved. And, and the regulations also get into that you could have a transfer of the IP itself, or you could also have a transfer of the stock of the right. transferee, um, and that also might trigger these rules. That's effectively what, what the regulations view as an indirect disposition of the IP. So it, it gives us that kind of basic construct. What it doesn't do is fill in a lot uh, of additional information that folks have with, okay, well, let's say I do an internal disposition of this IP. Let's say I, I transfer it in a non-recognition transaction to a related party. Um, what's that mean from a basis perspective? What's that mean from an earnings perspective, from a taxable income perspective? What's that mean um, if it gets back into the US, right? You know, or if it stays offshore, kind of what do I do in all those cases? And the regulations provide some, some answers. They also provide a lot of a lot of information that just leads to more questions. Right. Yeah, because there are just a whole number of issues that we need to think about, um, kind of collateral issues that happen as a result of this deemed fiction um, that that occurs as a result of 367D. So before we and I, there's a lot of background here, but I think this is, this is really important for, for for listeners to understand and kind of why this is so relevant. So. Um, there were some relatively recent changes to the 367D statutory rules during TCJA. Um, can you talk about those? What were some of the changes to 367D? And then my follow-up is going to be, how did TCJA change the game on IP ownership? But let's start with what I'm calling relatively recent changes to 367D, because it really did expand kind of what was subject to 367D on outbound IP transfers. Yeah, so, and, and there's some discussion of this in the TCGA legislative history as well. Um, preceding TCGA, Congress had envisioned an exception to 367 for goodwill and going concern value. They were really focused on more identifiable intangible property like patents, trademarks, copyrights, that kind of thing. Um, and that had created a, a, a lot of debate around, well, what is goodwill? How do you distinguish it from other IP? How do you value that versus the identifiable IP? Um, Treasury had actually even started to weigh in through regulations in, in 2016, 2015-2016. Um, and so the biggest change that we did in TCGA 
is um, amend the definition of intangible property that's relevant for 367D purposes. And basically added to that definition, goodwill, going concern value, and workforce in place. And then change the catch-all to pick up any item of value that, it, that is independent from the services of any individual. Because there's been a lot of discussion about, well, you know, what is property? And, it, you know, like, mm -hmm. what about these kind of more amorphous concepts that they slide outside of that? And the point of that was to say, look, if you got value coming in, you got to account for it somehow. And if we don't, if you don't have a hard asset associated with it, it's going in 367D. We're going to do this kind of constructive sale callback mechanism and call it a day. There's also some related uh, change to 482, um, but it's really kind of all twined in there of trying to get at making sure that taxpayers and the IRS aren't fighting about, you know, what's the nature of this amorphous intangible. All the value is getting picked up when you do an outbound non-recognition. Yeah, and that was, I mean, one of the big challenges that we had as advisors and taxpayers as well when companies were doing IP transfers just as part of the ordinary course, or maybe they had just done an acquisition, an integration, that question of, well, how do you, what is goodwill versus what is the value of the IP? And then with those changes with the TCJ, it just kind of roped everything into to 367D. Was it also the TCJA that changed, because it used to be the shorter the useful life or 20 years, or was that, did that precede that? Do you remember when that change occurred? Because that was also kind of how long that deemed royalty was relevant. Yeah, and, and, and that, um, so that cutoff rule actually has its base in the regulations, right? And you'll recall in 2016, I think it was right before the TCGA, Treasury had actually amended those regulations to say, look, you can use a 20-year useful life, but if you do, you've got to slam all the value into that period. You can't just cut it off. You've got to okay. still capture it all. Right. And so I think, you know, going into TCGA, Congress had in mind that, look, we're not going to um, we're not going to cut this off at some arbitrary point. You got to pick up all the value, even if there's a very long tail on whatever IP you're talking about. I didn't recall when that came in, but I knew you would. So thank you. For, thank you for clarifying. Um, so how did the TCJA, Aaron, really change the game on IP ownership for US MNCs? And there was this concept called the, the carrot and the stick and the introduction of guilty and FDII. But can you remind taxpayers and listeners kind of the whole policy of the TCJA, which really was to encourage IP ownership in the US? Yeah, I mean, it was hugely important to the members, and it actually has its roots several years before TCGA, if you think about the old camp discussion drafts, right, and the kind of options A, B, and C, and then eventually the kind of foreign-based company intangible income proposal in, in the camp 2014 draft. And where, where the members ended up in TCGA is, look, we're very concerned that the way the old U.S. tax system was, was set up, there's a strong incentive to keep IP and related economic activity outside of the US. And what, what the members wanted to do was level the playing field and make sure that taxes paying a significantly smaller factor, ideally no factor, in the decision-making process of where the IP gets located and where the economic activities get located. And so where they landed was exactly what we described as kind of carrot and stick approach. And so the, the carrot is FDII, right? Foreign-derived intangible income. The idea that if you're der deriving your intangible returns in the U.S., right, you'll get a, an FDII deduction, which is basically a lower rate of tax on those returns. And the stick is guilty, the global intangible low tax income regime, which says that if instead you derive those intangible returns offshore, right, you'll be subject to current U.S. taxation. You won't get the benefit of deferral, but we will tax you at that same lower rate 
that we're taxing the intangible income on in the U.S., right? And so um, that, that was achieved by not defining the intangible return by reference to the individual intangibles, but rather doing it more formulaically and saying, look, in general, intangibles generate kind of excess residual profits above and beyond a routine return. So what we're going to do is we're going to define what a routine return is on your tangible assets, what we now call QBI or right, the, the return on your qualified business asset investment. We're going to measure that for both your U.S. income and your CFC income. Anything in excess of that, we're going to deem to be intangible income and we'll subject it to either guilty if it's earned at the CFC level or FDII if it's, subject, if, if it's at the U.S. level. But we're trying to create parity between those two. Right? And what the, the overall design there is, can, can I say we, can, can the members achieve you know, reducing how much disparity there is in the U.S. tax treatment of that intangible, wh wherever it's located? So instead, right, that decision is being made on non-tax factors like the U.S. job force, education, you know, uh, infrastructure, and so forth, right? And giving U.S. workers a better opportunity. I'll stop with my... Um, Proceeding back to my Arnold talking points, but giving U.S. job, U.S. workers a better opportunity to have that economic activity here because we're competing on things that they can actually compete on, not on who's got the lowest tax rate. Right, and and to remind everybody, before the TCJA, where we had a 35 percent corporate rate, right, and we had the system of deferrals, so no immediate income inclusion like guilty that U.S. taxpayers, if they could move the IP offshore and make sure that the income that was earned related to that was not subpart F, and if you could do that in a low tax jurisdiction, there was a potentially a delta from 35% to zero, or as depending on where you would operate that internationally. With the TCJA, the idea was, well, with the introduction of guilty, which to remind folks is really the first income inclusion rule of its kind, Right, the idea was, hey, U.S. taxpayers, you can keep the IP in the U.S. that's going to generate foreign royalty income, be subject to that lower rate of tax under FDII at 13.125, right? Or um, alternatively, you can move the IP offshore to the U.S. or out, out of the U.S. into your offshore structure, but you were still going to be subject to the effective rate of 13.125 with the, with the credits effectively so that there was no incentive really for U.S. multinationals to move those rest of world foreign IP rights from the U.S. to offshore. That there was effectively parity subject to where you had your QBI and a number of other things. Right. And, and there was actually, uh, folks might remember, during the TCGA legislative process, there was actually a proposal to even facilitate the repatriation of IP, proposed section 966, which would have allowed taxpayers to return IP from a CFC to the U.S. without without triggering any U.S. tax on that transaction, that you'd also take a rollover basis. So you're not getting you know kind of an undue benefit. Um, that provision didn't make the final bill, and in part, um, th there's a variety of reasons why. But it, it's continued to be proposed as a possibility for incentivizing or or at least facilitating the repatriation of the IP because, you know, if we have parity or closer to parity between the location. You might say, well, look, I, I want to bring it back to the U.S., but I'm kind of locked in because it's already sitting offshore right. somewhere and it's hard for me to get it back. And so, you know, that's something that the members considered to, to make it easier for folks to get the IP and the, and the related economic activity where they want to be. So with the big push to bring IP back to the U.S. for U.S. MNCs as a result of TCJA, 
for those companies that had moved IP offshore in a transaction that was subject to 367D, so we've got this deemed royalty, this contingent sale, and if those taxpayers wanted to repatriate that IP, what does 367D before these proposed regs tell us? Does that royalty just stop? I mean, how does it work if companies are interested in bringing that IP back to the U.S. that is currently subject to 367D? Yeah, so, so the statute tells us nothing. Um, and the temp regs, I would say, tell us pretty close to nothing as well, right? And so it puts you in a tough spot because um, if that IP comes back to the original U.S. transferor, it seems very odd to keep applying 367D because you're applying it to yourself, right? Right. And so does it kind of merge out of existence or does it keep going? And if it keeps going, you know, the statute only talks about an EMP reduction. Do you get some kind of related deduction that offsets the income in the U.S.? I mean, you're already going to be taxed on the actual business profits from the IP because you got it in the U.S. and you're operating a business with it or licensing out or whatever you're doing with it. Why should you have this additional pickup? And then where it gets really odd is... Um, Let's say you bring it back to the U.S., but you don't bring it back to the original U.S. transferor. You bring it to some other member of the U.S. consolidated group. Well, now, now you can continue to have that kind of fiction apply. You've got you know, a transferee corporation. Um, but again, do you get the deduction that washes it out within the consolidated group? The, the regulation, I mean, the statute doesn't tell you that at all, and the regulations don't really tell you that either. And, and so folks have really scratched their heads on what's the... Not the right policy treatment here. I think it's rel relatively apparent what the right policy treatment is, but what's the right technical treatment just based on the rules we have? Um, you know, there were a couple private letter rulings that were issued in mm -hmm. the last several years. Those private letter rulings are pretty interesting because um, they involve circumstances where IP was previously outbounded, subject to 367D, comes back to the U.S. to a different consolidated group member, and then those, those PLRs rely not on 367D, but on the consolidated return rules to permit a deduction at the discretion of the commissioner, permit a deduction to the other consolidated group member so that you have both an income pickup and deduction that wash for federal purposes, right? So you don't have a net negative impact from bringing the IP back home. But those are only private letter rulings. They only apply to the taxpayers that got them, and they're actually based on the consolidated return rules and the discretion the IRS has under those rules, not on any kind of technical basis in the 367D statute or regulations. Yeah, which is fast. So if companies wanted certainty on this issue, which was a policy, obviously, that Congress really intended to promote with the, enaction, with the enactment of the TCJA, you had to go get a PLR. And the point, just to make sure that we're clear on the, this kind of deemed deduction, right, that occurs as a result of this contingent sale, this deemed royalty, all the regs tell you is that it's a reduction of, for earnings and profit, U.S. tax earnings and profits purposes, right? Right. And then they also say that a deduction is allowed for subpart F income purposes, right? And then they go on to say, and no other special allowances are, are, are allowed, right? Or no other special adjustments are allowed. So you're left thinking, okay, well, I get an EMP reduction, I get a deduction for subpart F purposes, nothing else is allowed. Well, what about for U.S. taxable income purposes? That's what I care about now. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a U.S. company. It doesn't, doesn't have subpart F income. Right. So what do I do with that? Right. And it leaves you in really kind of an awkward spot. Right. So absent getting a, a PLR, kind of taxpayers are kind of in this conundrum of what do we do? How do we treat it? And, you know, making sure that double tax is avoided. So, you know, maybe talk a bit about like that policy decision and maybe and you've already mentioned a couple, but any other kind of key policy issues that reg writers may be struggling with as they think about this. And then I promise we'll dive into the proposed regs. 
Um, yeah, so it, it, it's a great question. I, I think there's a couple things that a reg writer needs to be navigating here. Um, one is they want to make sure that they're giving effect to congressional intent and all of congressional intent, right? So some of congressional intent is to you know, achieve parity between the you know, location of IP in the U.S. and offshore and you know, to facilitate right, locating IP and related economic activity where it makes the most sense. But you know, another policy is that articulated in, in 1984 and 367D, which is to prevent right, um, the, the income from intangible property from escaping the U.S. tax base. Right? And so they got to balance those when they're writing any, any particular guidance. The other thing they need to be careful about is you don't want to permit taxpayers to engage in transactions that provide inappropriate or undue benefits. Right? You don't want someone to repatriate the IP and, for example, get a basis step up mm -hmm. in it right? without ever having paid U.S. tax on, on what gave rise to the basis step up. Because right. now they're getting effectively right, that the benefit of those amortization deductions that are escaping part of the U.S. tax base for free, right? And so you want to manage those considerations as well. And then the last thing I'll say is um, we've already talked about how this area is pretty complicated. Right. There's a lot of open issues. And so as a, as a reg writer, you want to be careful um, that you're only addressing what's in the scope of your project, right? Because there's so many other issues out there that you could take on. You start taking them all on, it becomes like a Christmas tree. It falls under its own weight, and you don't have anything left over, mm -hmm. right? And so you got to be careful to just stay focused on what's in front of you and not put a thumb on the scale for all the other issues that are out there. Even though they're important, even though they, they deserve guidance as well, they're not in scope yet. So let's focus on kind of keep our eyes on the prize, if you will. All right. So... Treasury has recently weighed in now after long awaited, and we've studied those PLRs and have frankly done a lot of questioning about how would we try to apply these rules in the context of an IP repatriation. But on May 2nd, 2023, the U.S. Treasury released proposed regulations on 367D related to the repatriation of IP. So let's, we could talk hours on this. We're not going to go into a lot of the mechanics, but really want to understand kind of high level, you know, what were some of those policy decisions and how mechanically do these operate? So let's start with a qualified domestic per, uh, person and how these proposed regulations kind of address what a qualified domestic person is and why. Yeah, so, so the rules only apply, the, again, these proposed regs are kind of a narrow, narrowly focused set of guidance, right? So they're only applying to transfers of IP, they're generally only applying to transfers of IP to qualified domestic persons, which are effectively the original U.S. transferor, right, or a U.S. individual or C-Corp that's related to that original U.S. transferor, right? And, and there's two things I'll note on that. One is they're not picking up unrelated persons, right? And, and it kind of goes back to the, the earlier part of the discussion we had. If you're transferring the IP to an unrelated person, that's kind of the right time to stop applying 367D under the statute, right? And, that, and, and there's already a set of rules that basically tell you that the U.S. transferor is going to pick up the remaining income at that time. We don't need to, to keep, keep belaboring the, the 367D application. The other thing I'll note is... Um, I didn't mention partnerships or S-Corps, mm -hmm. right? These rules do not take an aggregate approach to pass-through entities and determine what is a QDP, what is a qualified domestic person. Um, and, and they speak to it a little bit and say, look, there's real administrability challenges to doing that, which, you know, if you're thinking about a wholly owned partnership, right, you know, solely within a single group, you might say, well, what administrability? I mean, I could point to the structure chart right. and there's the U.S. companies, like why shouldn't apply? 
But think a little broader than that because Treasury's got to write regs for everyone, right? Think about in, out in the, the asset wealth management space, for example, right? I mean, you've, you've got flow-through entities sure. with just gobs of investors, and it's very difficult to figure out which ones are U.S., which ones aren't, you know, and, and the IRS is supposed to somehow audit all that. And so you can appreciate their struggle here with, on the one hand, writing a rule that, you know, kind of achieves as much of the policy objective as possible, but on the other hand, is something that they can actually administer and that IRS agents can go out and ask questions about and actually figure out what's going on and feel comfortable with what's on the tax return. So they're trying to strike that balance. And, you know, different folks are going to think that they've been more or less successful in doing that, but that's what they're trying to do here with this kind of definition of a qualified domestic person. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of comments that, that we get on, on that, because you can imagine certain stakeholders, taxpayers that you mentioned would be interested in these rules being broader than that. But I think that... The good news for like your typical publicly traded USMNCs, for example, that as long as it comes back to a consolidated group member, related U.S. company, that generally you are now within these particular rules, these these particular proposed rules. Yeah, I think that's right. So, all right. So, so then the the rules also provide some guidance with respect to the repatriation of the IP of whether it's a tax-free repatriation or a taxable repatriation. So talk a little bit about that and how, how those rules are designed. Yeah, so the idea here is um, if you have a taxable transaction, for example, your CFC sells the IP back into the U.S., right? Um, for cash or a note or whatever. Right, right, something like that. Um, there's, going to be a, there's going to be gain recognized on that internal transaction. There's going to be um, additional basis, right? The U.S. is going to take fair market value basis in the IP that it just acquired. And so the regulations say a couple things, the proposed regulations. Um, they say, first off, um, provided you meet some, some additional reporting requirements, we're going to stop applying 367D because you brought it back into the U.S. Um, second, we're going to require the U.S. transferor to pick up an additional 367D income inclusion um, based on the, the gain that's being triggered as part of that inbound transaction. Right, um, and and it's similar to the concept if you dispose it to a third party, right? The the income is supposed to be in the U.S. tax base, and so we're going to make sure it gets pushed back into U.S. Um, we're also going to reduce the gross income that the CFC has on that transaction, and the thinking there is you shouldn't get hit twice, right? If you're picking up the gain in the U.S., you don't need to also be picking it up at the CFC level. Once is enough. Um, and then the last thing we do is you, you get fair market value basis in the IP at the U.S. level um, on a go-forward basis, which makes sense because you just paid for it. Right. So in other words, and, and I think the other besides a taxable sale that I should have mentioned, just a taxable distribution. So for my U.S. code heads, a 311B distribution. In other words, just a taxable dividend, if you will, of the IP of the, the, the property would also. So what absent these rules, you would potentially have guilty inclusion or sub F, depending what the, the case may be at the CFC level. And then you would also have this acceleration, if you will, of the initial 367D. And the architecture says, well, no, you recognize the income in the U.S. And then you effectively reduce that gross income offshore by the income that you're included in the U.S. So you're only subject to tax once. Right. And, and, you know, you, you remind me of something with the distribution, Doug, and I, I don't want to get too far into it, but you had mentioned actually earlier on that um, there's this question about, well, you know, foreign law doesn't view this as a contingent sale, so right. how do you get the cash back, right? You know, you're picking up income in the U.S., and 
traditionally what the, what the regulations have said is you set up this kind of receivable, mm -hmm. right, that you can pay down, you can treat kind of future distributions as a pay down of the receivable for U.S. tax purposes. These proposed regulations do the same thing on that repatriation transaction. It gets very awkward when you're doing a distribution into the U.S., though. Right. Because there's no proceeds. Right. Right. So what are you going to do with the receivable? And there's a mechanism to capitalize receivable in the regulations, but it's not the easiest thing to work with. And so um, uh, there's, some, there's some questions that still pop up, right? You know, the guidance provides some answers, to be sure, but there's plenty of questions left, right? We're not... Um, we don't have it all figured out yet. What about a tax-free transfer? So as we think about like a tax-free liquidation or some type of inbound reorg, you know, something that would otherwise be tax-free, what happens when a taxpayer tries to repatriate the IP as a tax-free transaction? So if, if it's a tax-free transaction, um, the, the proposed regulations generally are going to respect that. They're not going to require an acceleration um, they do require you to prorate the year, right, and pick up your remaining 360-70 D inclusions up until the point of the year when you do the inbound. Um, but they don't require an acceleration of all future inclusions because you're going to still have the IP in the group, right, right. and um, you've got it on, on a carryover basis. They also provide that the basis that the U.S. takes in that IP is, I'll say more or less, the original U.S. tax basis. Um, there's actually some pretty important adjustments um, that you make, you look at kind of the, the lesser of two numbers plus uh, the greater of two numbers um, to, to figure out what, what that carryover basis is. But what they're trying to get at is whatever the U.S. transfer had as basis in the IP originally, they're going to keep having that plus any gain that, that they picked up um, on a disposition of it. And that last piece, what they're really focused on, and this is fleshed out in an example, mm -hmm. is um, if you have a partial non-recognition transaction, right, you do, for example, a, a 351 where some gain is recognized on it, but not all of it. Well, you know, these regs gotta gotta handle that too. And so they give you credit for the gain you, you are picking up, but give you kind of carryover treatment for the rest of it. And so they kind of manage that with those set of adjustments. Yeah, and this is this concept that they call in the regulations of the transfer basis property. And you kind of have to walk through those mechanics. And I think one of the other things that they were concerned with is to the extent that you move that IP offshore, you've added additional, you've got additional basis that was accrued offshore really trying to prevent effectively the inbounding of that additional basis um, when you bring that IP offshore. Yeah, and I think that's a tricky area that um, folks are gonna keep thinking through, right? It goes back to um, who's picking up the income, mm -hmm. right? Because when you have a transaction that increases basis offshore, particularly post TCGA, there's a good chance of US shareholders picking up that income in a guilty inclusion right. or a subproduct inclusion. Um, in addition to, you know, the income being recognized at the, at the foreign corporation level. And so there's probably a pretty important question here about, well, to what extent do you give credit in the U.S. for inclusions related to it? Um, I agree with you, kind of the approach that's taken in these proposed regulations. Um, they're proposed. They request comments. And right. I'm sure the government's going to get comments, um, and including possibly on this particular point. Mm -hmm. All right, and then maybe the last point to, to talk about in these proposed regulations was the allocation of deductions. And you had mentioned earlier kind of to, to subpart F, but then they've kind of changed that. So why are those rules important and how does the proposed regs potentially change that? Yeah, so um, the proposed regs do a couple things here. So one thing I'll say is we talked earlier about, well, what kind of deduction do you get at the U.S. level? And they address that by just turning it off, right? When, when you fit into these proposed regulations and have a repatriating transaction, um, 
367D stops applying, so you don't need deductions at the U.S. level. The other thing that they do, though, is they clarify at the CFC level, right, um, that the deductions will be allocable against subpart F and tested income. Um, the tested income one, I think, is very helpful, although the um, guilty regulations were previously amended in a way that picked them up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in, the, in the context of a gain transaction, it's not really a deduction we're talking about. Instead, it's just a reduction in the gross income that the CSC would recognize on that gain because the U.S. just picked it up as part of the kind of acceleration event in the 367D. All right. So, so what are the applicability dates for this, Aaron? And how do taxpayers that are interested in moving IP, what do they do? Yeah, so, so that, that's a pretty loaded question. It is. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, so these, these regulations are proposed to be applicable after they're finalized. Right. And um, importantly, and unlike a lot of reg packages that we've gotten, they do not permit taxpayers the option of relying on them early. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't permit taxpayers the option of applying them early, and they don't have any kind of reliance language even in the preamble. And so this is what I would call kind of your traditional proposed regulation where it's sitting out there, it's for consideration, but it doesn't become effective yet until finalized. And so if you've got a taxpayer today that's thinking about IP that's sitting offshore that they want to bring home, um, but it's subject to 367D, what do they do? I think they're going to really struggle with this guidance, which is favorable, welcome guidance, but it's not yet applicable and it doesn't permit taxpayers to rely on it. And so they either need to work through the existing rules and see if they can read the existing rules in a way consistent with these proposed regulations, or they need to think about something like going back in for a ruling. Right, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny when you think about it, because before the, the 80s, the whole 367 regime was a ruling regime. Right, and I don't think that you know the IRS wants to be back in that world of issuing a POR to every every taxpayer that comes up with a 367 367 issue. Um, but that you know continues to be a path that folks are going to think about. And then the last one I'll say um, is I would encourage um, taxpayers to submit comments absolutely on these regulations and and on all issues. You know, one thing I'll just, I'll stop after this, but I'll just note is um, when you're in government, you don't, you don't see everything, mm-hmm. right? You see a lot of things and you have, you know, a lot of different, different ways of thinking about things, but you don't see everything. You're not a mind reader. And so it can be difficult to understand some of the challenges that taxpayers are facing unless someone tells you about them. And so I think it, it's a really valuable part of uh, the lawmaking process, whether it's legislative or regulatory, for, for stakeholders, taxpayers to come in, submit comments, say, hey, this is what we're dealing with, this is where we think these things work, where they don't work, this is where we think that they can be improved, so that the reg writers have a chance to think about that and then can make a call about it when they finalize the regs. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice, Aaron. And the other thing that I will point out, if there are any policymakers and uh, those from, from Treasury or elsewhere in the government that listen to this podcast, that... There are a number of U.S. multinationals as well as, frankly, non-U.S. parented groups or maybe they have subs under the U.S. that are contemplating where ultimately some of this intellectual property is the best place to reside in the context of Pillar 2, right? Because with Pillar 2 being enacted January 1st, 2024, and we know we've got like this under-tax profit rule that has been enacted by CREA to apply in 2024, this calendar year for those calendar year companies and this fiscal year for, for the fiscal year taxpayers, this may be, given our the transition rules for Pillar 2, the last year to be able to move IP that doesn't trigger some large Pillar 2 income. 
And so in my view, if the U.S. has a sound policy and, and taxpayers can rely on here's how we can repatriate IP back to the U.S., then presumably that may encourage some of those taxpayers consistent with the policies of the TCJA to bring that IP back. And I'm, my concern is, is that this uncertainty and the potential risk of double taxation that currently exists within 367D may uh, disincentivize certain multinationals from bringing that IP back to the U.S. And I think that's certainly a comment with respect to being able to rely on these rules even after they're finalized would be helpful. But I do think time is of the essence on this. And maybe I'll just leave that as my commentary. Yeah, awesome point. Totally agree with you, Doug. All right. Well, Aaron, always great having a conversation. It's great to get a little history and context in 360 because this can be so complicated. But I think you did a really nice job helping remind me of some of the history and kind of how we got to the point where we are. And we'll see what happens with these final regulations. Yeah, th thanks for having me, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Aaron Jung, PwC International Tax Partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.